Read the prayer, dear church, and say, Lord, I receive your word. Increase my wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him you're wiser than you think. Well, we're going to talk tonight about fearing God and enjoying life. How's that sound? Now, that only comes at the end of the message because you know Solomon in Ecclesiastes. He's going to go through all the things that are bothering him, that have vexed him. But when we get to the end of the chapter, he's going to tell us, you know, in light of all these things, I just want you to fear God and enjoy life. But before then, let's move on. We're we're in chapter 8 tonight. This is Ecclesiastes, and this is, of course, Solomon, who has drifted from God in his older age. It's a real tragedy because he started so well. He started strong and ended badly. And, and it's hard to believe, but that's really what happened. He started strong, dedicated, built the temple, the Solomonic temple, dedicated it to God. And God came down so strong that ever, nobody could stand on their feet. They fell on their face. God spoke to him, made him promises. He was God's man of faith and power for the hour. He was God's man for the world of that day to reflect and magnify and glorify and communicate the reality of God, the reality of Jehovah God. But he started marrying the wrong kind of women. They were pagan women, idolatrous women. And these women eventually influenced him. You know, you can't hang around the wrong kind of people forever or too much, and not be influenced. I don't care who you are. Solomon wrote Proverbs, the wisest man on earth. I mean, the man for that hour. Yet we see that wrong relationships took him down. So be careful who you run with. But anyway, as he begins to come out of it, he's very disillusioned. He's, he's searching for meaning and for answers to life. And so being a brilliant mind, and he was a brilliant mind, he begins studying things, human nature, human dilemma, human predicaments, human problems. He begins studying them. And he wants to understand what makes the universe tick. And so you'll hear him talking about disillusioning things and things under the sun, which is his way of saying, or our way of understanding, that when he says under the sun, it means he's looking at life horizontally with no vertical reference. No vertical reference point. It's all this way. And when you live just this way with no vertical reference point, I guarantee you, you're going to end up depressed like he did. Okay? So, last time in chapter 7, we ended with Solomon lamenting the fact that he couldn't find a virtuous woman among a thousand. Well, duh, He was fishing in all the wrong places. His problem was that he had been fishing in all the wrong ponds, having met and married only pagan women that led him astray into idolatry. If you fish in a pond that only has catfish, that's all you're going to get. Come on. So don't go looking for the right person in a bar. Don't go looking for the right person in the wrong place. Use common sense. But he, but he hooked up with the wrong women. A thousand of them. 300 wives, 700 concubines. No wonder he went down. That's a thousand wrong influences. 
Now, as we begin chapter 8, the preacher, and that's another name for Solomon in Ecclesiastes, the preacher is observing both the rarity and the power of wisdom. Look what he says in verse 1. Who is like a wise man? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the sternness of his face is changed by wisdom. Now, in verse 1, here's what he's saying. A truly wise man is rare among earth's population. I want you to know that tonight. A truly wise, godly wise, Bible kind of wise man or woman are rare when compared to the mass population of the earth. There are many that claim to be wise, but their wisdom is worldly and will not lead a person to God. And we need to understand that today. There is what the world calls wisdom, but it's the wisdom of the world. It's human wisdom. It's fleshly wisdom. And our history books are full of human uh, philosophers who espoused worldly wisdom, but the fact is that their worldly wisdom will never lead you to God. So you go off to college and you pay that tuition fee thinking that you're going to go increase your wisdom. But a lot of times what happens in college is, you, as a matter of fact, most of the time, you just get filled with worldly, crazy wisdom, human wisdom, not from God, that doesn't lead you to God at all. As a matter of fact, it leads you away from the true God. You've got to be very careful when you go off to college anymore. If you're going to do liberal arts, I wouldn't even go. College is not always the best choice anymore. It has become a hotbed for socialism, Marxism, anti-Christian, anti-God, anti-Bible, anti-authority. Now, I'm not saying don't go. If you do go, put on the armor of God every day and, and fill yourself with the Word of God. I hope you're strong enough when you go through those doors. Because you're not going to encounter people who just think you're the greatest thing since sliced bread as soon as you tell them you're a sold-out Christian. It's just a fact. Now, I didn't come tonight to talk about colleges. That's free. I'm just telling you. I've been there, done that, got the T-shirt. I know what's there. Listen to what Paul said. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 21. He said, The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know that it's the very power of God, the cross of Christ. Jesus died for you, rose from the dead, only he atoned for your sins. That message is idiocy, foolishness, preposterousness to the lost. They will mock you every time. But to the person who comes under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and realizes that it's true, to them it's the power of God unto salvation. To all who believe. And it turns out, he goes on in verse 19, as the scriptures say, here's God talking. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. Human beings who think they're wise and think they're intelligent. He said, God said, I'm going to destroy their so-called wisdom And I'm going to wipe out their so-called intelligence by showing them that the wisdom of God is so much higher than human wisdom. It's from here to Pluto. God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. 
His wisdom is higher than any wisdom we can attain to on our own. It's humbling to hear this. There's a lot of people that wouldn't like to hear this. But look what he says in verse 20. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. Verse 21, since God in his wisdom, catch this very carefully, since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom. He has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. you got all these philosophers, all these Stoics, all of these Greek philosophers, the ones that we all know and recognize, you know, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, all the Greek philosophers, all of the Roman philosophers, and the orators, and all through history, through all of the centuries of history, all these philosophical systems that have risen up to answer and give meaning to life. God says, I'm going to put all of it to shame by somebody simply standing up and saying, if you put your faith in Christ and come to him, Christ the power of God and Christ the wisdom of God. And by simply putting faith in the finished work of Christ, you're saved and you have all the meaning to life you sought for in all those philosophical systems. It's amazing to me. So notice, God has decreed that the wisdom of man will never lead a person to salvation. The wisdom of man will never get you there. Only through the simple preaching of the cross is a person saved. So we preach the cross all the time. We preach the cross every week. People are being saved every week. Every week we see the reports. Every week people are being saved because we're talking about the cross we're not walking out here to blow people away with big words and, and eloquent sentences. No, no, no. We're coming out here and just saying, through the cross, you're saved. And I've noticed when I preach the cross, they come. It's just that simple. The Bible says that true wisdom has a beginning. Since you're wondering, perhaps, well, what is wisdom, Jeff? I mean, you're wisdom this, wisdom that. Solomon's talking about wisdom. What is wisdom? Well, here's where wisdom begins. It has a beginning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of true wisdom. The fear of the Lord. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Proverbs 9.10. The wisdom that leads to life and ultimate joy begins with knowing and fearing God. Now, lately, just because I'm curious, I've been listening to a bunch of atheists. Seriously, a bunch of them really eloquent people. I mean, these guys, Hitchens, Dawkins, Harris, Russell, I've been listening to them, listening to their whole spiel, listening to them be asked questions from Christian audiences. These guys have a way with words that is uh, beautiful. God, God really gifted them. They've just used it wrong. Um, and they would deny that. But Evolution didn't gift them. God did. And they have this, I mean, they're beautiful just to listen to, but they're oh so wrong. And one of them always, well, they usually will. If you listen long enough, they'll pop off and say, so you're telling me that a loving God wants you to be deathly afraid of him? And they misrepresent God all the time. And they mock and make fun of and point out the phrase, the fear of the Lord. And they say, 
How is that love if you're to be afraid of the God who supposedly loves you? Well, they show their biblical ignorance, and they are biblically ignorant. Now, they'll quote verses all the time, but verses misapplied, verses that are skewed, verses that are not understood, because their natural mind is trying to understand a letter written to God's children. So, what is the fear of the Lord? Well, we know that the beginning of wisdom is to fear Him, but fear is not to shrink from Him in terror. It's not to be terrified of God. The fear of the Lord means a reverential fear, the kind of fear you have toward a good earthly father. You love being with Him, listening to Him, and you respect Him, but you also fear doing something that would bring His discipline. We all remember our mamas saying, just wait till your father gets home. How many of you ever heard that? Come on. Wait till your father gets home. Oh, I used to dread that. And, and I would sit upstairs in my room and just wait where I, where I knew his car had driven up and, the, and I would hear the front door open and, and I knew I was in trouble. And, and so I was afraid of him that way. But the fear of the Lord is like having a good father. You love them, you want to be with them, you respect them, and you want to please them. And if you do something wrong, you're afraid of the coming discipline. But you're not terrified of them. You love them. So this kind of reverential awe of God is where true wisdom begins. I fear the Lord. How, how about you? See, if you go out tonight and you say, all right, heck with it, I'm going to walk in the flesh, and I'm going to go do something I know is sinful. If you don't have a little bit of fear in your heart that God's going to take you to the woodshed, I wonder if you're a child of His. Because you know He's going to take you to the woodshed. You know you're going to be convicted. You know your conscience is going to be stung. Without that kind of fear of the Lord, listen, you have zero wisdom. Look at the benefits of wisdom. Solomon says that this kind of wisdom leads to happiness. How many in here want to be happy? Anybody here doesn't want to be happy? Okay. Everybody here wants to be happy. Raise your hand. You want to know how to be happy? Watch this. It says, happy is the man. Can you read it with me? Happy is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gets understanding. So happiness begins with a reverential fear of the Lord. You're on the road to happiness. Because when we get right with God, that's where true joy comes from. All right? Proverbs 24, verse 13 to 14 says, My son, eat honey, for it is good, and the drippings of the honeycomb are sweet to your taste. Know that wisdom is such to your soul. If you find wisdom, there will be a future, and your hope will not be cut off. Proverbs 19, 8 says, He who gets wisdom loves himself. In other words, do yourself a favor. Get wisdom. Get wisdom. Get wisdom. And start with the fear of the Lord. Lord, I respect you. I'm in awe of you. I want to be with you. I want to walk with you. I want to talk with you. And Lord, I know if I mess up, I need to be a little nervous. I fear you in that respect. Now, in verse 1, 
He says that wisdom is going to make your face shine. Wisdom will do for you what Maybelline Max Factor can't. Wisdom makes your face shine. That's what it says. And it'll remove the sternness of an unhappy countenance. You ever seen somebody just, rah, 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 they just every line in their face is going down because they're always frowning. They're aging with a permanent frown and scowl etched on their countenance. But you let them get saved and walk with God and get some wisdom, and it says their face lights up, and God begins to reverse all that. And you can see people who are 80 years old, they look younger because their face shines with the wisdom and the presence of God. No wonder Moses' face shined with the glory. So say with me, wisdom will make me better looking. I would have you tell your neighbor that, but I don't want you to get in trouble. Let's try that again. Wisdom will make me better looking. It will. Well, some of you, I'm going to get wisdom tonight. Praise God. I'm, I can hear it right now. Appeal of people's vanity. Now, next, the preacher advises us to obey authority for God's sake. Now, we're really shifting gears here. Verse 2 and 3. Look what he says. Obey the king since you vowed to God that you would. Don't try to avoid doing your duty and don't stand with those who plot evil. For the king can do whatever he wants. Now, listen carefully. Every Christian who knows and obeys Scripture has essentially vowed to honor authority. So long as the authority does not require them to disobey God. Jesus taught his disciples, pay the taxes. Jesus taught his disciples to be submitted to authority. Paul wrote that we should be submitted to authority. Look what he said in Romans 13, 1 through 2. Here's Paul writing. Everyone must submit to governing authorities. For all authority comes from where? comes from God. That does not mean that God is amening or putting his seal of approval on authority figures who do wrong. It's just saying that authority on earth is established by God. And those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. Verse 2 So anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and they will be punished. Now, that's what the Bible says. Now, we all know this is true. If you leave tonight, and you're zipping down 35, and you're not looking at the speedometer, and lo and behold, you hit 80, and you pass a police car, and suddenly behind you are those wonderful red lights that make your day, and pull you. You cannot say, you cannot say, tonight I'm not going to obey authority. And you just keep driving. If you do that, soon there will be two more behind that one. And one will be here and one will be here and the other will be behind you. And you will be hearing sirens. If you continue in your particular non-authoritative mood to continue down the road without pulling over, then you're going to see some in front of you throwing these things on the road. Finally, they're going to get you pulled over, and the authority God has established is going to win the day. So Paul said, you better obey authority, the authority that God's established. So anyone who rebels against 
that authority is literally rebelling against God. Now, this command is balanced by the clear teaching of Scripture that the authorities, if should the authorities require you to submit to something sinful, the child of God must refuse. Now, I want you to catch that again. I'm really teaching this. If those authorities require you to do something that is a sin against God, that is when the child of God must refuse. Now, you know the example that is most apparent, that's really on the scene right now, that we're all looking at, the Obamacare. Now, just hold any commentary or clapping or no clapping, because I'm not after any of that. I just want you to listen for a minute. Here's Obamacare. Obamacare is initiated. And now we learn that those who have religious convictions about abortion must provide for abortifacients to their employees. In other words, the health care law has drawn all of us into the dark practice of abortion. We must put money into it. Now, I can name them to you. James Dobson, Focus on the Family. Hobby Lobby, run by Christians. Both have filed lawsuit against the government saying, I will not put a nickel to provide abortifacients for abortion because I believe life begins at conception. But for the first time that I can remember, that I know anything about, a government, our government, is saying it's no longer just your choice. If you don't want to be involved in abortion, you don't have to. We do, so we will. No, now we're being forced to become involved in it, to give to it, to provide for it. So what does the church do? The church says, I must obey God rather than men. And do with me what you will, but I cannot and will not provide for abortion. If you put a gun to my head, I will not provide for abortion. And it seems that our culture, our society, the American society, is moving more and more and more into this mode of we are now going to legislate and force you to do what your conscience does not want to do. And we really don't care what you think. So we must say, like, for instance, if I was told tonight, you can never again teach Romans 1. If you teach Romans 1 that homosexuality is deemed a sin by the Bible, if you teach that, it's a hate crime, you're going to jail. So never teach it again. I would have to say I must obey God rather than men. And I trust with God's grace, that's exactly what I would do. But it's come to that, folks. This is not the America I grew up in. It's not. It's changed. It's radically changed. And it's changing by the day. Breathtakingly, amazingly, stunningly. So, for instance, give you an example. The three Hebrew children refused to bow to the idol of Nebuchadnezzar. 
and were thrown into the burning fiery oven where God delivered them. They refused to bow, and God delivered them when they were thrown into the oven. And when the disciples were commanded, quote, not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus, they refused to obey, saying, here's what Peter and John said, do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? We cannot stop telling about everything we have seen and heard. In other words, we can't do that. We must preach Jesus. I wonder how many are still going to be coming to church if it really gets hot out there. And, and the stakes really get high. Not only am I in trouble for preaching it, but you're in trouble for being here and listening to me preach it. <laughs> I wonder how many would say, you know, I don't feel good today. I think I'll stay home. It's really quiet in here. Now, do you know that I can just teach something this simple and teach people out? To get, up, get up and leave just for these simple statements. What's happened to us? Where's free speech? What's happened to being able to share an opinion without being shut down and forced to be quiet? What's happened to us? I tell you folks, Christians had better grow a backbone quickly and start standing up and speaking up and refusing the muzzle of political correctness and say, I will say what I want. It's a free country. At least it was when I woke up this morning. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say what I believe. And, and if you're that threatened by what I believe, maybe you need to check out what you believe. <clears throat> All right, now, then Solomon gives us the reasons to obey authority when it's legitimate. He says in verse 4, His command is backed by great power. That is the power of the king. His command is backed by great power. Nobody can resist or question it. If you rebel against the king, or in our case, the law, you cannot match his power to execute justice. As the old song said, I thought the law and the law won. I love flushing all the boomers out every week with these, these older songs. I thought the law and the law won. It always does. Solomon assures us in verse 5, those who obey the law will not be punished. Those who are wise will find a time and a way to do what is right. For there is a time and a way for everything, even when a person is in trouble or under stress and pressure. There is a time and a way for everything. Now, let me just elaborate on this for a minute. The wise man can wait for the right time to do a right thing. Even in times of trouble and stress, we might say that the wise man is an opportunist in the best sense of the word. If we're in times like we are right now where by the day it's less and less popular to be a believer and at every single turn we're seeing somebody coming after our liberties, we can still, if we're wise, find the right time to do the right thing, to take advantage of every opportunity. Let me read to you some verses. Here's Galatians 6, verse 10. Therefore, as we have, what everybody? Opportunity. Let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Now, I have an opportunity to be here tonight, and you have an opportunity to be here. So what are we doing? We're taking advantage of an opportunity. Because who knows but what we won't have this opportunity forever. So 
when there is an opportunity to do good, the wise person seizes it and makes the most of it because it may not always be there. Look at Ephesians 5, 15, 16. Paul wrote, so be careful how you act. These are difficult days. Don't be fools, but be wise. Read the last part with me. Make the most of every opportunity you have for doing good or redeem the time. So we can pray today. We can meet publicly today. We can preach on radio today. We can be on the internet today. That may not be here tomorrow. So what are we doing? We are righteous opportunists taking advantage of every opportunity to do good for the glory of God while the opportunity is there. Now he surmises next in verse 7. Indeed, how can people avoid what they don't know is going to happen? You can't avoid something if you don't know that it's coming, right? Since we never know what a day may bring, good times or bad, we need wisdom for all times. Isn't that true? We need wisdom for all times. That's why I really believe in storing up the Word in your heart as much as you can every day because the day may come when you need every single verse you've memorized, every single inch you've gotten in your walk with God, you're going to need it. So we preemptively prepare against the day of evil. I, I mean, I'm in the Word a lot. I store it up because I know I'm going to need it. Now Solomon discusses the one thing over which we have no control, the day of our death. Isn't this an illuminating, edifying topic here? Verse 8, everybody's going to die. But look at verse 8. He says, none of us can hold back our spirit from departing. None of us has power to prevent the day of our death. There is no escaping that obligation, that dark battle. And in the face of death, wickedness will certainly not rescue the wicked. Solomon is saying, let me tell you about something you have no control over the day you die. Now, here's the question. Are you going to be ready? Or are you going to be taken by surprise? How many times do we read in the news of somebody who got up that day, thought they had the rest of their life, and that day it's over? These people, these three people that went up in that hot air balloon. I don't know if you read that story. Three people went up in a hot air balloon. And they were involved in some project. I forget what all it was. But there were several, many, many hot air balloons that went up. But these three people got in one, and they got up, and the thing came too low, and it hit a power line and burst into flames. And you heard one woman, witnesses on the ground, and I don't mean to be macabre. This is just what was reported. A woman on the ground heard this woman up there yelling, Oh, dear Jesus, I'm going to die. Oh, dear Jesus, I'm going to die. And that was it. She died. Did she get up that day thinking, well, this is my last day on earth? If I remember reading correctly, she was in her 30s. What he's saying here, what he says all the time is, wisdom dictates being ready for the big issues. Being preemptive. Are you ready to meet your God? Are you ready to go into eternity? Are you ready to leave this planet when your time comes? If you're not, you're not living in wisdom. When your time comes, it comes. My dad told me that weeks before he passed away. Jeff, when your time comes, son, it comes. 
And although wicked men who most fear death use all possible means to free themselves from it, yet they shall not escape it, he says in the end of the verse. Wickedness won't deliver you from death. The key is to be ready for that day by placing your faith in Christ Jesus. Now, verse 9, all this I have seen, he goes on, and applied my heart to every work that is done under the sun. There is a time in which one man rules over another to his own hurt. There is a time where one man rules over another tyrannically and unjustly, whereby they not only oppress their own people, but they hurt themselves by bringing the vengeance of God and of men upon their own heads. No tyrant really ever gets away with it totally. You think Hitler got away with it? Or Stalin? Or Mussolini? Or all of the tin-hat despots who ruled tyrannically over people and oppressed them and made their lives miserable? No, no, no. They met their maker when they died. So, again, he's noticing how good people can be oppressed. But the oppressor himself brings himself under judgment. Now, next Solomon points out the sour legacy of this wicked ruler. Verse 10, he says, Then I saw the wicked buried, who had come and gone from the place of holiness, and they were forgotten in the city where they had so done. This also is vanity. Now, the wicked that he is talking about here, the wicked person, is no doubt the tyrant that he mentioned in verse 9 who rules over people, oppresses them, makes their lives miserable, kills them, starves them. Look at North Korea right now. Look at what's happening in the Ukraine. Look at what's happening in Egypt to Christians. Egypt's are being, or Christians are being slaughtered all over the world. Do you know that I read this week that more Christians are being martyred now than ever in the history of Christianity? More Christians are being martyred by the day than in the history of Christianity around the world. We're in a bubble here in America. And so he's talking about the tyrant who does these kinds of things. And he says this tyrant leaves a place of holiness. Now, that place of holiness might have been Jerusalem or the temple, but more than likely the place of rulership from which he should have dispensed justice. And these wicked rulers, though offered an honorable burial, were soon put out of mind by their subjects who had been so cruelly treated by them. Listen to this verse, Proverbs 10, verse 7. Read it with me. The memory of the just is blessed, but the name of the wicked will rot. What do you think of when you think of Hitler? It's rot. What do you think of when you think of Jesus? It's a blessing. What do you think of when you think of Stalin who murdered millions of his own countrymen? Rot. What do you think of when you think of Paul? Blessing. What do you want people to think about you when you're gone? You want them thinking rot? Or do you want them thinking blessing? Everybody in here is going to leave a legacy. I've done enough funerals. I've done many, many funerals. There have been funerals I've done. I presided over where I'm telling you the person in front of me who had died was not being missed. There were no tears, hard faces, but not much sorrow. Then I've been at funerals and presided over them 
where you stood there for an hour and a half, so many people were weeping, falling on that casket, kissing them, unable to walk away, missing them. And I go, rot, blessed. We're all going to leave a memory. How many of you can say, I want to leave a blessing? Amen? You walk with God and love people, and you'll have the second kind of funeral, unless Jesus comes back. Amen? Amen. Now next, the preacher points out the necessity of swift and decisive punishment for a crime. Look at verse 11. Now he's going into uh, uh, capital punishment. Verse 11. When a crime is not punished quickly, people feel it's safe to do wrong. Have you ever noticed that? Our justice system is so faulty on this point. Murderers who have destroyed the lives of both those they killed and the loved ones who are left behind sit on death row for decades with the ones left behind never receiving the justice due them. And their buddies, those who knew the criminals or know of the situation and who have criminal intent, they say, well, I can go out and do whatever I want because the, the ultimate punishment is never executed in this state. And it's so wrong that we spend tens of hundreds of thousands of tax dollars keeping these people alive when they slaughtered, killed, destroyed, not only those they murdered, but the families that will never get over it, that will live the rest of their days with the memory of their loved ones right on the front burner. And it's not right. He says, you encourage the criminal when you do that. That's just life, folks. Well, Pastor Jeff, do you believe in capital punishment? The Bible does. Oh, I'm getting some looks. That's not love. Oh, it is too love. All you got to do is sit down with a family whose loved one was murdered. Sit down with them sometime. Listen to them. Watch them. Walk with them for a few years as they try to get over it. To give them justice is love. Amen, Pastor Jeff. That's good preaching. I'm going to get this CD. All right. Solomon says this only emboldens criminals to continue in crime. Now, 12 through 13, even though a, hundred, even though a person sins a hundred times and still lives a long time, I know that those who fear God will be, will be better off. Now, he's dealing with the inequities of life again. That question, how does God allow dastardly criminal, evil, wicked people to live till they're a hundred and somebody who loves God and are precious and loved by many go home to be with Jesus when they're 30. Why? How is that? I don't understand it. It still gets to him. It's one of the great questions of the ages. It, It makes atheists out of some people, that question. Okay? But here's what he says. Even though a person sins a hundred times and lives to 100. I know that those who fear God will be better off. Verse 13, the wicked will not prosper for they do not fear God. Their days will never grow long like the evening shadows. One of my favorite passages is this one, quote, do not fret because of evildoers and don't be envious of the wicked for the evildoer has no future hope and the lamp of the wicked will be snuffed out. One of Satan's greatest temptation tactics is this. They get you to looking around at the people in the world. And the, and the enemy will say to you, 
Look at them. They're having all the fun. Aren't they having a blast? They're partying. They're going where they want to go, doing what they want to do. They're not going to church every week. They're not living in that Bible. They're not trying to live a Christian life. They're, you know how they're living, but look at all the fun they're having. And it's one of the devil's biggest lies because you don't see the rot going on in their soul. You don't see it. You can't see it. And you're many times not there when their payday finally comes. So I like telling myself, never envy the wicked. No matter how much the media tries to present the wicked as having the key to life, as having all the fun, as never really reaping any consequences, it's a lie. The media always airbrush sin and candy coat the consequences. He who walks with God will never regret it. Can we say that together? He who walks with God will never regret it. Read this last part with me. But the wicked will always regret their wickedness sooner or later. Always. It's a guarantee. Verse 14, and this is not all that is meaningless in our world. In this life, good people are often treated as though they were wicked. And wicked people are often treated as though they were good. He could have put that this morning in the Dallas Morning News. This is so meaningless, he says. Isn't this reality increasing in our day? Good is being called bad. Bad is being called good. Right is being called wrong. And wrong is being called right. Moral is being called immoral. And immoral is being called moral. Have you noticed? Are you living on this planet? You do know this is what's happening. Isaiah said in chapter 5, Woe to those who call evil good, and those who call good evil, who put sweet for bitter and bitter for sweet, light for dark and dark for light. Woe to them. This is increasing in our day. That's why you better walk closely with the Lord and lean on His power in times like this. These. Let me give you an example of how crazy we're getting. This week I read a story that, you know, it takes a lot to shock me anymore, but I did have to put it down and just lean back and breathe deep when I read this. Richard Dawkins, probably the best-known atheist in the world, professor at Oxford, wrote, I'm not going to give you the name of the book. I don't even want you to go look it up. But he wrote a best-selling book on atheism. He is about to have passed legislatively in England because he is English. He's about to move a law through legislatively that will deem any parent who raises their children Christian as child abusers. Child abusers. Because in the atheist mind, and I'm talking about the new atheists, Dawkins, Hitchens, Harris, these guys that are on the forefront of the the atheistic movement today, these new atheists are not content just to have their atheism to themselves. They're evangelists for atheism. And they believe that as long as a culture is religious, it holds that culture back in, into childhood. And the only way a culture can grow up is to grow out of religion and into pure 100% secularism. So he is about to push this legislation through. So that in England, if you're raising your child Christian, you're going to be called a child abuser, and it's going to be child abuse. Now hold that thought. Also in England, they're now 
they have passed a law where they allow an eight to nine year old child who decides they are not, if it's a boy, that little eight year old boy says, you know, I really feel more like a girl. They're allowing that child to take medicine to prep him for transsexual surgery. Stop a minute. Now think with me. Professing themselves to become wise. Professing themselves to be wise, they have become fools. The word is moron. Stop a minute. Wait a minute. I want you to think with me. I'm, I, I really, I'm not after anything but to give you something that just blew me away. Where our culture, where the West is going. It's crazy. That this little eight-year-old, what does an eight-year-old know? How to play marbles? What does an eight-year-old know about anything? But mama, I, I think I'm a girl. Well, dear, we'll just get you on the medicine. And allow a little boy to be mutilated for life. That's not child abuse. But raising them Christian is child abuse. This is the land where Spurgeon preached, Whitfield preached, the Wesleys preached, Joseph Parker preached. Some of the greatest preachers in the history of Christendom preached in this land of England. And look what's happened to it in one generation. We need God to move. We need God to move. And you know what? God moves in the darkest of days. But I'm going to tell you, folks, we're in some dark days. We're in some confusing days. Let me close. I know that's a sobering story, but I want you to know what's going on out there. And you think that it can't happen here? Oh, contraire. Please understand. We're five years behind England, if not three. Now we come to the lighter, cheerier part. <laughs> Yay! Look what he says in verse 15. So I commended or advised enjoyment because a man has nothing better under the sun than to eat, drink, and be merry for this will remain with him and his labor all the days of his life which God has given him under the sun. Here's what he's saying at the end of the chapter. In light of all these things, we cannot change, just realizing we can't change these things like inequities, the certainty of death, the reality of wicked tyrants and evil men. We can't change those things. I advise you to enjoy the life God has given you. Accept the things you cannot change and don't let them ruin your joy. Don't let them ruin your joy. Commentator Matthew Henry writes this. He says, Faith alone can establish the heart in this mixed scene where the righteous often suffer and the wicked prosper. Solomon commended joy and holy security of mind arising from confidence in God. I want to give you one more commentator. Uh, There we go. And commentator Gills says this, quote, A cheerfulness of spirit in whatsoever state or condition men are, serenity and tranquility of mind, thankfulness for what they have, and a free and comfortable use of it, this the wise man praised and recommended to good men, 
as being much better than fretting at the prosperity of the wicked and the seemingly unequal distribution of things in this world. In other words, let me just say it again. Don't allow these various worldly vexations to steal your joy and rob you of your peace. That's what he's saying. So I share with you some heavy stuff tonight, but you know what? I'm going to get with God long enough for me to experience the joy of the Lord, and I'm going to walk in the peace of God. I'm not going to let these things ruin my soul because a peaceful, joyful spirit, thousands of them, millions of them, is what is going to change this world. Not a bunch of atheists. Amen? So here's the last two verses. Let's stand and we'll just read them together. Verses 16 through 17. In my search for wisdom and in my observation of people's burdens here on earth, I discover there's ceaseless activity day and night. Verse 17, I realize that no one can discover everything that God is doing under the sun. Not even the wisest people discover everything, no matter what they claim. The ceaseless activity he's talking about is both the providence of God that's always moving And then the activities of men that are always going on. Here's what he's saying at the end. It's too much for me to keep up with. I'm very bright, Solomon's saying, but I can't keep up with all these things. So the best thing is to leave what you don't understand with God. Who will clear all things up with time? As the preacher wrote earlier in chapter 3, let's read this together. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from the beginning to end. He makes everything beautiful in its time. Jesus is going to come back. The lion is going to lay down with the lamb. It's going to change one day. And until then, don't lose your peace. Don't lose your joy. And let's go forth and just shun political correctness and share Jesus with pride and joy because he is the answer to the world. Amen? Amen. Father, we just thank you right now. We thank you for your blessing. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for your goodness. And Father, in these very dark times, let us be a church that shines like the city set on a hill that cannot be hid. A lamp set on a lampstand that cannot be obscured by the dark. Thank you, Lord. Your church is the light of the world, the salt of the earth. Can we just lift our hands to him and say, Lord, in this dark hour, help me to shine and make a difference. In Jesus' name. Worship just one moment. Here I